we're going to talk about tonight. We started last week uh, looking at the events of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we began uh, to look at Peter's first great sermon there on Pentecost, and he, uh, you'll recall that the events of that day were just utterly remarkable. The Holy Spirit had been poured out in a way that was very clearly manifest to all who were who were present. Right there, they could they could hear this noise on the outside, this noise like a rushing wind. They could they could see with their eyes these these divided tongues that looked like fire resting on the disciples, and and then they could hear what was going on inside the the disciples as they were speaking foreign languages of all the various people who were in Jerusalem, and they're they're wondering how could a bunch of Galilean you know yokels do this, and then. Yeah, most of the people are amazed. They're drawn by these events, but there's a few people standing around that are too cool. They're like, oh, they're drunk. And Peter said, no, they're not. It's only nine o'clock. We're not drunk yet. Uh, He said, no, this is the pouring out of God's spirit that had been promised in Joel chapter two, verses 28 to 32. And that's where we stopped last week. Because I wanted to focus this week, our time together on the message that Peter delivers in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. The tricky part will be for me to hold a microphone and read a Bible, so let me use the stand for this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all our witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is a very powerful and very direct message by Peter. It covers 
a great deal of theological territory. He is, this is the first, you know, great proclamation, public proclamation of the gospel message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is a, in a very particular, very powerful way as he walks through this. And the more you look at this passage, the more you realize just how much he has packed into every word as yeah, he's operating clearly under the inspiration of the Spirit. And it begins in verse 22 where he talks about Jesus and, and he says, you know, I'm not here telling you about Jesus being powerful. God told you Jesus was powerful. That He's not being attested by the disciples. He was attested by God. It was God's testimony through miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus was not some ordinary prophet or, or holy man or ordinary person. He was testified very clearly by God. And then look at verse 22 at the very, the very end of it. He says, as you yourselves know. He is, he is defying them, if you will, to argue with him. You know, is anyone, anyone in this crowd going to say Jesus didn't do these wonders and miracles? Well, people 20 centuries later may argue about it. You know, you might have academics uh, making claims now. But trust me, nobody there in Jerusalem on that day was arguing that Jesus worked amazing miracles. They all knew it. They had either seen it directly or they knew people who had. That's the consistent witness of the New Testament. Uh, that's why so often they use this eyewitness language and say either we saw it ourselves or they'll, uh, in the verse that was, the verses that were shared with us by the team kids, talks about the 500 that Jesus had appeared to. The point was there were lots of living witnesses that people knew, could talk to, and they would be able to deny it if any of these things were true. So Jesus is making, uh, Peter here is making a very clear point. And then verse 23, he lifts up a very interesting thing, which we see quite often in, in Acts, which is this clear teaching that the crucifixion of Jesus was driven by two simultaneous forces, both responsible. One, it was the advanced knowledge and definite will of the sovereign God. And at the other hand, these people were fully responsible. You crucified him. And you cooperated with lawless men, with Gentiles, with the Romans, to crucify him. And this is a it's an interesting point, right? Because it reemphasizes what we said all along. The events of Good Friday, of Easter, they were not accidents. They were always the plan of God. This was his plan to redeem mankind. And yet it in no way absolves those individuals of their guilt in crucifying the Son of God. But then we see, uh, the, then we see this longer section, verses 24 to, to 31. And I'm moving a little bit quicker here in light of our, our time where where Peter is teaching from Psalm 16. He teaches and interprets the verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16, and it has to do with uh, talking about whether the body uh, will, will see corruption. Uh, will you let your Holy One see corruption? And, and Peter says, well, it obviously can't be David talking about himself because David died in the first century. The people knew where David's tomb was. There, I think it was on the south side of Jerusalem, was the considered where he where we believe today he was buried, but it was a well-known place. He died, his body corrupted. So he wasn't talking about himself. Instead, what, what Peter says is that David was a prophet. He knew Jesus was coming. He knew the Messiah was coming, and he knew the resurrection was going to take place. And the point is not that David proved the resurrection, because he's going to explain the proof for the resurrection in a minute, but the point is that this is 
the proof, if you will, the argument, if you will, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, because he is the one who did not see corruption. He is the only one who conquered death. He died. He rose again. Right? And there's all kinds of great things in these verses uh, that I wish we had time to explore. Uh, you know, I love this phrase, you know, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I just spent some time thinking about that. All right, Jesus, it was not possible for death to hold on to him. But then we see in verse 32, right? So 30, 30, 24 to 31 is really an argument explaining why Jesus is the Messiah, why they should understand that he was the Christ. The clincher about the resurrection is actually relatively straightforward. It's in verse 32. He says, this Jesus raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, right? They've got all these disciples standing, the ones speaking in foreign languages. They all have encountered the risen Jesus. They are all witnesses. Basically, the challenge is, why don't you talk to us? We'll tell you about it. In fact, I'm telling you about it now. But you can find us and you can talk to us anytime you want. Because we are witnesses. And remember, we, we looked at Luke, right? The way they were witnesses. They, they touched him. They saw him. They heard him. They watched him eat. They, you know, they're, they are witnesses. There is no doubting what they're saying. You, know, you can't say, oh, they were hallucinating. Well, no. Luke is clear. This occurred over many days. Oh, they, he was a ghost uh, or a spirit or they were having, you know, imagination. No, they saw him eat. They touched him. They felt him. They heard him. There's no getting around this. They are witnesses. This is an emphatic claim of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, he is teaching the message right off the bat, very powerfully, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we come to verse 33. It says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, so after the the resurrection, he, he, Jesus is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. And just as he had promised in John 16, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus himself is the one who poured out the Holy Spirit upon the faithful. Right? And he's saying, this is the event you're watching today. This thing you see today, this weird event, this miraculous event, these people speaking in foreign languages that they've never known before, this is the pouring out of the Spirit by Jesus and I love here in verse 33, we just get this very nice, you know, Trinity description, a, a little, you know, discussion about some of the different roles they play in the Trinity, because we have Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. He's received from the Father the Holy Spirit, and then in turn, he has poured out the Spirit on the people. So we, we get this nice picture of the Trinity, the way they work together, but also some of the distinct roles that they play. <laughs> And then we begin a discussion from Psalm 110, uh, which is being used to discuss really the exalted status of Jesus. And Psalm 110, this is important passage. We know this is an important passage used multiple times in the Bible. The book of Hebrews, a significant portion of Hebrews, is a very long sort of sermon, if you will, based on Psalm 110. And so we see Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so he's, Peter is bringing forth to the Jews, and for the Jews, David was the man, right? You don't get much higher than David. And he quotes to them David, saying, The Lord, right, God the Father, said to my Lord, said to David's Lord. Well, who is David's Lord? Well, 
probably no one really knew up until that point. And he says, David's Lord was Jesus Christ. It's David's Lord that he sees at the right hand of God the Father. So he's speaking here to the exaltation of Jesus. So we've had the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus here in this message. And the message proceeds, and then we kind of get to the, the money verse, if you will, the one that's designed to really get the reaction out of the people. Right? He's taught them the truth. He's taught them what's gone on. And he comes to verse 36. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, 100% rock-solid certainty that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This gets a reaction. And interesting, unlike so many times we've seen reactions in our journeys to the gospel where it's been a negative reaction when there's a bold claim like this, here we see a reaction of genuine conviction. The crowd is cut to the quick. We see the events in, described in verses 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Right? This is kind of a conundrum. They've, they've come to realize they killed the Son of God. They killed God incarnate. They had guilt for this. What shall we do? And I don't, you can't even imagine that depth of despondency with this clear realization. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I wish we could be a lot longer on this because this is the good, good, good news right here. Right? They have done something they cannot undo. They have crucified God incarnate. And what are they supposed to do about it? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is sufficient. That is what brings forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that belief is implicit in that. You would not be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ if you do not believe everything that Peter had just said about Jesus being the resurrected Lord in Christ. That was the conclusion of verse 36 there, the thing that led into this. So all they have to do is believe. Repent and believe. And the most heinous sin you could imagine in the history of the world is forgiven. Right? And that's incredible. That's the grace of God right there. That no matter how bad the sin is, it's just a cry of faith and repentance away from forgiveness. Right? This is good news for us. This is good news for everyone we encounter, right? Because no matter our sins, our shames, whatever uh-ohs we can't undo, we're just a cry of repentance and faith away from forgiveness. That Repent and be baptized is a sign of that faith. That is the good news. We often get overly sweaty about what is the gospel and how do I share the gospel and how do we talk about the good news with people? What is the good news? This is the good news right here. However bad it is, God is better if you trust in him, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And then verse 39, there's this great promise here, which is, should be good news for us, right? The promise is for you, this crowd here, for your children and for all who are far off. All the people, the ends of the earth, who, whom the Lord our God is calling to himself. Right, this is our hope, this is our joy, this is the good news for the Gentiles here in this crowd, which would be certainly include me. And we see the conclusion of the event. 3,000 souls baptized. We know going into this there were about 120 disciples, and now there's 3,000. So by my math, that's a 25-fold expansion in one day, uh, done without a fog machine, amplifiers, or skinny jeans, simply with what Paul would call Christ and Him crucified. That is the power of the gospel right there. I want to just close us as we wrap up for the season uh, with verse 42. Right? Well-known verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right? This is the birth in the early days of the church. And it's such a beautiful picture of a community of faith that is in fellowship, that's in worship, that is devoted to the preaching and teaching of, of Scripture, of the apostles, devoted to prayer and care. And, and I think we all pray and want to experience this here, that these are the ways we would want to describe ourselves as a church. So as we read these verses and we see this community of faith in action, a community that is welcoming in the murderers of Jesus, that is building up one another through the apostles' teaching and prayers, and reaching out to everyone around them. I certainly pray that this will, this image will carry us into the summer and into our new, old, if you will, vision as a church. Uh, I just pray that we will have a blessed summer and we'll gather again in September. We will do, uh, make sure there's lots of notice in advance. So we want to encourage people, invite your friends. When we start up again after Labor Day, uh, we will begin with the Gospel of Luke. Uh, jump back to the beginning. We only did the last little bit in these last few weeks. So uh, it's 731, but I can take a quick question or two, and then we will pray, and we'll break for the summer. All right. Sorry to have rushed it, but again, I, I really enjoyed seeing the kids and celebrating the, the things going on here, and I hope you did too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that we have explained so clearly to us here in Peter's message, a message of power, a message that no matter how dark the place we have gotten, no matter how terrible a thing we have done, there is forgiveness and grace through faith in your Son. Your Son, who was crucified to redeem mankind, your son who was raised, who is exalted at your right hand, who reigns over all creation, Lord. Lord, I pray that you will help us to follow him more closely, love him more closely, Lord. Help us to be more free to share the good news, that we would be a church increasingly like this one we see in Acts, devoted to you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.